Thank you. Thank you. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. To Luke chapter 6. And this morning we will continue studying the Sermon on the Plain. And we'll be in the Sermon on the Plain for a number of weeks. Remember, in Luke's gospel, Jesus has first and foremost identified himself as a teacher. And we've seen him teach here, there, and everywhere. But we've had very little actual insight into what it was he taught. And Luke now, for the first time in his narrative, gives us the extended teaching of Jesus. After going up and spending a night in prayer on a mountain, he descended down, he called his disciples to him, he appointed 12 of them as apostles, and then he spoke this sermon, starting in chapter 6, verse 20, it says he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and said, and so last week we saw how the sermon on the, pl- on the plain, this level place, is a message that Jesus gave to his disciples in the presence of a great multitude. Now, there's a great multitude of disciples. There's an even greater crowd. And we talked about how that, in some senses, is very much like the people who are here today. Jesus' disciples are those, disciples simply means a learner or a student, who in some sense recognize themselves as, as looking to Jesus for instruction. Now, that group is going to grow and stretch and shrink, and at some points, many of them will go away. Not all of these people are saved. Not all of these people will persevere to the end. But unlike the crowds, these are a group of people that have some level of self-identification with Jesus. And, and likewise, here this morning, there are those who are, are part of the Lord's church, who are, who are committed Christ followers, who've, who've been following the Lord for, for decades, perhaps, And some of you might be visitors here looking to see what does the Bible say, what does Jesus give, but you wouldn't be here if you weren't in some sense willing to listen to what God's word says and to what Jesus says. And so in that sense, this group here is very much similar to the group whom Jesus spoke to. And last week we saw that the sermon began by Jesus addressing four blessings and four woes. And he's speaking to his disciples. And, and what he's basically doing is, is revealing the hard attitudes, the, the mindsets to distinguish for this big, large group of disciples where they stand. Who are his true disciples? That's the category Jesus can use elsewhere in John 8. And what he tells them is this, blessed are, and I would say those of you, my disciples, my would-be disciples, who view yourself not as rich, but as poor before God. Blessed are those of you, my disciples, who, who are hungering for something this world cannot satisfy. You're looking ultimately for something that only God can give. And woe to you, those would-be disciples of mine, Jesus says, who, who this world is actually quite satisfying. I've got all I want. I'm very comfortable. Yes, I'd like to go to heaven when I die, but Lord, please don't come back anytime soon. I've got lots of plans. And, and he then says, blessed are those of you who are mourning and weeping and dealing with your sin. And woe to you who are just proud of yourself and pleased with yourself and laughing and jocular. And finally, it culminates, and we, we learned that ultimately all of humanity is going to fall into one of these camps as it comes down to whose children are you? Are you the descendants of the true prophets or the false prophets? Whose tradition do you stand in? And the final blessing, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then in verse 26, but woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And the final blessing and woe comes down to whose approval and whose reward are you more interested in? Are you willing to forego the approval and the applause of man for God's reward? Or will you fear man and serve their approval? And ultimately, you're going to stand in one of these two traditions. Ultimately, you're on the the team of the true prophets or the false prophets. You're their descendants. You're standing in their stead. And Jesus is telling his disciples 
This is how you'll identify those of you who are, who are blessed, who are my true disciples, and those of you who perhaps need to question where you are. And it's important that we review that because our text today is easily one of the most difficult and challenging texts I have ever had to preach on. This, this week has been tremendously difficult working through this. Not difficult because what Jesus says is, is a riddle. Difficult to understand. Precisely, it's difficult because of how easy it is to understand. How plain he speaks and how what he says destroys my understanding of how I want to live my life. It, it, it wrecks all of my natural impulses and calls me to a standard I cannot possibly in my own strength keep. And he says it not to the crowds, not even to all the disciples, but to those who hear which is I would take as meaning those who've just passed the first test. He lays out the blessings and the woes, and some of his disciples are recognizing, I'm the blessed, I'm encouraged, that's me. Okay, now those of you who hear when he gives this. So I'd like to start just by reading our text this morning, and then beginning to look at Jesus' call to radical love. Luke 6, 27 to 35. But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same, and if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that for you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the heart of Jesus' message. These challenging, simple, straightforward, life-destroying verses are the heart of his message. In fact, if you look at the whole sermon as a whole, he introduces the blessings and the woes, which is classic Jewish concepts. You think of Psalm 1, blessed is the man. And it's going to end, in another week or two, we'll see with a call to response. And we look at the examples of the tree that bears fruit or the builder of the two houses who builds on a rock, who builds on sand. This is the heart of Jesus' ethic. And don't misunderstand what's going on here. He's not telling his disciples, this is what you do to become saved. Now, we've already seen that. His allegiance to Jesus is already assumed, even as we saw back in verse 23, when people curse you for my name's sake. He's speaking to people who've already committed themselves to him. Rather, this is the ethic. This is the, the life that he demands and commands of his disciples. I would suggest to you this also might explain why Luke has delayed in giving us this teaching. Because with what we're going to see is so difficult, so counterintuitive, so counterhuman, that we need to know who this one is who is speaking. And so Luke has at great length given us the authority, the deity, the power, and the right to make these statements. Consider Luke 1.32, he is the son of the most high. Luke 2.11, he's the savior Luke 4.18, he's the Christ. Luke 4.3, he's the Son of God. Luke 4.34, he is the Holy One of God. Luke 5.8 and 5.12, two men falling down in front of him, calling him Lord. Jesus calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath and the Bridegroom. It matters because if we're going to even try to do what he says here, the one who speaks better have the authority to command he better have the wisdom to know what he's talking about. And he better have the power to back up the promises that he gives to those who will attempt to follow this. 
This is radical love. This is crazy love. This is Jesus' ethic for his disciples. And we're going to look at it in three parts. It begins, after it says he spoke to those who hear, with four commands. You see them right there in 27 through 28. Love, do good, bless, and pray. And they're all active. And so point one, we're going to see love's initiative. Love's initiative. It's followed by four other commands of how to respond to people. In point two, we'll see love's response. And then finally, in point three, we'll see love's standard. Love's initiative, love's response, love's standard. Let's, let's dive in looking at love's initiative. And Jesus is going to argue from the extreme case. And don't misunderstand, Jesus is not saying, you can treat your friends however you please, but I want you to treat your enemies a certain way. Rather, and this is a very Jewish way of thinking, if if this command holds true in the most extreme case, the one who strikes your cheek, the one who steals your property, the one who abuses you, how much more should it hold true in the lesser case? So Jesus is going to the extreme, and that's what makes us uncomfortable. So let's look at love's initiative. Look at love's initiative. We're just going to follow the commands. How are we to treat our enemies? Because that's what this centers on, loving our enemies. Look at the first command there in verse 27. Jesus says, and it's simple, it's plain, it's clear, it's just hard. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. The blank there is affection. You think of love, we're talking about a mindset. We're talking about the affections. How do you regard your enemy? You love them. You love them. Now that right there is counterintuitive, and it's counter what the Jews of Jesus' day had already been taught. In Matthew 5, Jesus, teaching a similar sermon, says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So we know that the prevalent teaching of Jesus' day of the rabbis and of the Pharisees was at least in part, you love your neighbor, you hate your enemy. Now, I can live with that. That's, that's a little easier to do. And Jesus just blasts that out of the water. I mean, you gotta understand, the Jews of Jesus' day thought it was a virtue to despise and hate the Samaritans, to despise and hate the Romans, to despise and hate tax collectors like Levi, who we just saw. They thought that was a virtue. God hates them, they said, so we hate them too. And Jesus shows up and he just demolishes that ethic and puts in its place this amazing command to love your enemies. Now your first question you gotta ask is, okay, enemies, is this just hyperbolic or does he just mean people who mildly irritate me? I mean, surely he just means the guy who got the parking space you wanted but he's just told us that we're, they're going to have enemies, didn't he? In chapter 6, verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. No, I think he means real, literal enemies. He's told his disciples, expect it. That's, that's the problem for us in the West. We, we don't expect it because we've been, we've been getting along with the culture pretty well. Just recently, the last few years, the worm seems to be turning and it's actually looking like a real possibility that those who hold to faithful biblical teaching will be called bigoted, will be called hateful, judgmental, intolerant, that people might begin to be excluded, that people might begin to lose their jobs for things they post on social media, bakeries will be shut down. We're starting to see that, and it shouldn't surprise us. Doesn't make it fun, but it shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is if we've had 300 years where that hasn't happened. Now, this is the norm. And so when Jesus says enemies, I want you to stop and think about this, because as I was studying through this, I don't view myself as having many enemies. I don't have a nemesis out there somewhere. Until I began to think about just how I view the world. And I think we do have enemies. I want to challenge you as we move through this text to think of who your enemies might be. Perhaps your enemies in your mind are Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Perhaps your enemies are political in nature. It's It's the politician you don't want to become president, and it's his or her most ardent supporters that you rub elbows with every day, and they're so obnoxious, and they don't get it, and they're just stupid, and why would they vote for them? And those, that's who I'm talking about. 
Or maybe it's your coworker who, who got the promotion instead of you because he spread bad rumors about you. Or maybe it's, it's, it's any number of people who as they begin to understand what you believe about marriage, what you believe about the exclusivity of Jesus, become more and more offended at you. Maybe if you, some of you, if you have already been passed over for jobs or even fired because of your faithfulness to Christ. I want you to think of those people, the people you most view as your enemies as we walk through this. Don't, don't make this too easy. Don't just make this be you know, the, the in-law that kind of irritates you. Think of your real enemies and then start applying this loving your enemies, loving ISIS, loving the candidate you don't want to vote for or candidates you don't want to vote for. (laughs) Think of them. Love your enemies. Now, this, this has some type of precedent in the Old Testament. The Old Testament certainly speaks about treating your enemies with kindness, but nowhere in the Old Testament that I've found does something this radical and this strong get said. The closest I could find is Exodus 22, 23, I mean, verses 4 to 5. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. And if you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So there is Old Testament teaching that if your enemy is in need, you help him. But loving your enemies, Jesus has just taken it to a whole new level. Whole new level. Now I want you to think that Jesus has already given us a model for that, hasn't he? Because we are told just previously in this chapter that one of his disciples, namely Judas, who would betray him, yet Jesus called him. And for over three years, Jesus loved him. I mean, think about this. Jesus' love and concern for Judas was equal with how he treated the others because when he said later, one of you will betray me, the 11 don't say Judas, right? They're all confused. In other words, they couldn't detect any difference in the love and compassion that Jesus showed to Judas than what he did for the other 11. They were dumbfounded. They had no idea who would betray him. And Jesus knew from the beginning, we're told. Jesus knows in calling Judas, he is calling the one who will betray him, who will cause him to be nailed to a tree, beaten and whipped and crucified. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. And even later in Luke, we'll see him still show love, even to the Pharisees. In Luke 7, 36 and 11, 37, he gets invited to a dinner party by the Pharisees, and he goes. They've they've already decided they're against him. He goes. I I think Jesus means this literally. Every example I can see in Scripture points that Christ loved his enemies, not in some sort of vague sense, I hope nice things happen to them, but he'd go to their houses and he'd eat with them and he'd die for them. Okay, so we're to love is to engage our affections and our mindset. We're not to think of them as enemies. We're to love them. Next he says, do good. Our love has to translate into actions, and that's the next blank. Actions, do good to those who love you. And again, it's far too easy for us to think, well, I love my enemy. How so? Well, I hope nothing bad happens to him, and every now and then I just sort of you know, think something nice about him. Do good. Acts of kindness and love. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. I mean, and think of this played out, actively doing good. Like Exodus talked about, helping your neighbor who hates you, who's got the sign for that candidate you don't like in their front yard, who's obnoxious, who needs help, and you do them good. This is not the way we're wired. This is not the way that comes naturally to us. We're to love our enemies. Because here's, here's the tension. What's going to happen is this. Already it's starting to happen. The world has a very definite definition of love that we don't meet. The world, our culture says, love means unconditional acceptance and affirmation. And so the test then of whether or not we are loving in the world's eyes is whether or not we will unconditionally accept and affirm anything. And it seems like with the news reports and the laws that I see, we're supposed to affirm just about anything. 
you want to self-identify as a tree? I'm supposed to say, okay. And, and, and we can't do that. And nothing Jesus is calling us to do here in love, and it's nice that he unpacks it, calls us to that. We're to think of them, not as our enemies we want to murder, but to love them. We're supposed to do good for them. But what's going to happen is, as the world gets that we don't buy into their definition of love, they will accuse us of hating them. And then they will take the position and the stance of enemy towards us. Right? And that's already starting to happen. How should we respond? We love them. And the goal is that in loving them, we overcome evil with good. In loving them, eventually they start to question, are these Christians really the hateful people we thought they were? Or we can just give them back as good as they give and we'll confirm to them, yeah, all that talk of love's a bunch of baloney. They're just like us. They hate their enemies. This is the test. How will we respond to those who have made themselves our enemies, who've, who've who've identified us, who slander us as being hateful and judgmental and intolerant, how, how will we respond to them? Now, we certainly don't compromise the truth, but right here, we love our enemies. How do we feel and think about them? We do good to them. We do good to them. Bless actions. Do good to those who hate you. Move on to the next one. Bless those who curse you. Someone swears you out. Someone calls you a name. Someone mocks you ridicules you, or worse yet, posts a a sarcastic Facebook meme about you, (laughs) what do you do? You bless them. What, What should come out of your mouth? Now we're getting to words. You bless them. You bless them. Now surely Jesus is speaking metaphorically, hyperbolically. No, while our Lord Jesus was nailed to a cross, what words came out of his mouth a little later in Luke? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I submit to you, when our Lord says, bless them, he means it. He modeled it. He did it. Actions, affections, words. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That'd be petitions, your requests. You're loving them in word and in deed. You're thinking lovingly towards them. You're doing loving actions. Your your words to them are words of blessing and your prayers for them are on their behalf. We think of Stephen in Acts 7, falling to his knees as he's being stoned, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, now, you might be tempted if, if, a, if you're being m- murdered by a mob who are throwing rocks at you, you might be sorely tempted to think, I'm gonna pick up a rock and I'm taking at least one or, two, one or two of you guys with me. Right? That'd be natural. Stephen prays on their behalf. That's love's initiative. How are we to treat our enemies? Love them, do good for them, speak blessing words to them and pray for them. And we can't compromise and, and do what the culture says. This is what's so frustrating is we know we're trying to love them and they keep saying, you don't love me, you don't love me, you don't love me. Why? Because you don't accept and affirm me as I am. God doesn't accept and affirm you as you are. Jesus had to die so that he could bring you into his presence because we're sinful. God's love meets us where we are, but make no mistake, God's love doesn't accept us just as we are. God's love sent his son so that we could be changed and we could be forgiven and we could be glorified. We will all be very different when we are before God. But the world has its few. And so now we move into the really hard commands. You thought those were tough. That's just the, that's just the appetizer. Here's where it gets rough. And again, we've got to consider how literal are we to take these. Someone punches you in the face. The ESV is too weak. It's a strike or a blow to the jaw. What do you do? Somebody robs you of your outer garment. What do you do? Someone asks to borrow from you. What do you do? How literally are we to take this? And it amazes me how many commentators I read grapple with this and, and, and... vacillate on this. I'll read, I'll read one who sums up some of the discussion. In, in considering 
the following commands as a group, a question emerges about how literally these commands are to be taken. Some totally reject the teaching as unworkable. They simply say, you can't live this way. If you did, you'd just be walked over, you'd, you'd be homeless, you'd have nothing, you'd be taken advantage of constantly. Some see this totally unworkable. This is just pie in the sky. Others argue that they reflect an apocalyptic worldview that saw the end of the earth as near. And so Jesus gave, in their view, wrongly, a temporary ethic. In other words, Jesus thinks there's only a month or two left in this world, so just give it all away, and you can live this way. Well, that's not right either. Some accurately... Um, sorry, still others speak of the spirit of the commands is the point. Now, that is what I read the most of. It's just the spirit. He doesn't really mean to do this. He's just sort of in your heart. And the problem is, you can be thinking you're doing all this stuff in your heart and not actually be doing it. Continuing in the quote, um, these commands are expressed in absolute terms meant to shock the listeners by giving a vivid contrast to one's own thinking. They also communicate by their radical character the importance of the concept. Now, to be honest, to follow um, Luke 6, 29b literally would result in nudism. The point, though, is that Jesus' ethical demand is strong, comprehensive, and serious. The world's ethics are to be surpassed, as the following text will show. But one will only accept the demand if one believes that God will see that he will reward the faithful and that he will be just in his final evaluation. Without such a theological view of reality, the ethic of Jesus will wilt into futility and foolishness as, the followers, as his followers would then be exposed to no hope of justice. To commit to radical love, one must see that God honors such a commitment to reflect his grace. Understand what Jesus is saying, the ethic he's holding up here doesn't work unless the promises about your heavenly father seeing and rewarding and caring for his people hold true. Jesus' commands will not work. Our foolishness in a closed box where there is no God. They only work in a system where there's a God who watches, a God who rewards, a God who takes care of his children. Let's, let's now enter into love's response. Love's response. Verses 29 to 30. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, we're going to work through these, and I know already if you're like me, and I spent most of the week, you're thinking of exceptions. You're thinking of, well, surely not in this case, not in this case, not in this case. And I will grant that there are some exceptions. This is not the totality of the law. But can we now, for the next few minutes, actually look these in the face, and rather than thinking of when they don't apply, think of when they might. Rather than coming up with reasons why <laughs> you surely can't mean... Think about the possibility that maybe, at least in some cases, this is what our Lord would have us do. That's what I want you to do. We'll spend some time in the ABF if you want. I know there can be exceptions. I know there's other things the scripture says. I just want to encourage us to look this square in the face and ask ourselves, are we willing to hear and bear this? Will we hear him? When Jesus says to those of you who hear, prophetically through the word, he's speaking to us. Will we hear or will we turn away citing this as foolish? Point number one, be mistreated. Be mistreated. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, literally punches or beats you in the face. This is the same word for strike used later of the servant who gets drunk and beats the slaves. The publican who beats his breast. Same word on the jaw. Turn the other cheek. Be willing to be mistreated. Now, that, that, that doesn't mean you just sort of stand there and just take it. Even Jesus in John 18, when he, is, when he is struck, has something to say about it. 
In John 18, 21, he's being interrogated before the high priest and it's illegal. Israel, just like us, has this notion you're not required to condemn yourself. Witnesses need to be brought forward. And they ask Jesus about his teaching. And Jesus says, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me from what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I've said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? So turning the other cheek doesn't necessarily mean you can't say, I don't think this is right. I think this is unjust. Play by your own rules. But it doesn't mean that Jesus got ready, you come near me again, I'm going to sock you. Also notice this isn't a life-threatening injury, nor is this something an ethic that, that, that I believe Luke or Jesus would have us extend to, to nations and beyond. We've already seen in Luke 3 when the, the soldiers came to John the Baptist, he told them, don't accuse falsely, don't, don't take more than you have your right, be settled, be content with your pay. You know, and obviously, this notion of turning the other cheek is an individual ethic to so those who hear. The nations that try to live this way won't survive very long Soldiers, policemen, people like that are called as, as Caesar's sword to, to inflict wrath at times. But you and I, when people abuse us, mistreat us, are not called to retaliation or threatening, but to be willing to let it happen again. That's really the heart of this. When someone does something like that to me, when someone hits me, when someone hurts me, my gut reaction at best is I'll make sure that never happens again. Maybe I never talk to you again. Maybe I avoid you. Maybe I draw my claws out. You do that again, you'll be sorry. And here, you're, you're willing to let this happen again. You're willing to let this happen again. Next, be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. Don't withhold your inner garment. Now, in Jesus' day, we know this from the Bible, your outer garment, unlike us who have many suits of clothes, you likely, if you were living in Jesus' day, only had the one. In fact, case law is given in Exodus 22 that says this, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So the assumption in Jesus' day is this is your bedding. This is your sleeping garment. This is what will keep you warm at night. Think that through and make the transition 2,000 years later to what types of things this might be talking about. It's not insignificant things. And what do you do when someone takes that from you? And, And there's some debate, is this a legal taking or is this just a thief? I'm not entirely sure. you're willing again to let it happen again. Again, we have examples in scripture of, of, of people invoking the authorities. I don't think it just sort of means if someone breaks in and they, they try to steal your TV, well, don't forget the Blu-ray player as well. I don't, I don't think it means that. But at the end of the day, are you willing? Am I willing to be vulnerable? Am I willing to be hurt again? Am I willing to part with my stuff? At the end of the day, I, I think this at very least gets down to the heart. Whereas my mentality you mess with the bull, you get the horns. See, what rises up in my heart is don't tread on me, right? I give as good as I get. You'd be warned to stay away, mess with somebody else. That is the exact antithesis of what Jesus is saying here. Do not withhold your tunic your inner garment either. And again, surely Jesus isn't literal. You understand when they crucified Jesus, what did they cast lots for? Did Jesus literally let people take his garments? I don't know if you know this, Jesus was crucified naked. They took his outer garment, they took his inner garment. He, he did this literally. He did this literally. Okay, moving on. Be mistreated, be vulnerable, be generous, be generous. Give to everyone who begs from you. Now the ESV says begs is asks. 
and I think this is much more the notion of someone asking for help or someone asking for a loan. The, the following context makes it clear. Verse 34, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? And when Jesus summarizes his teaching in verse 35, love your enemies, do good, lend. So I, I do think that's what he's talking about here. And again, I know that Paul says elsewhere, if someone won't work, let them not eat. I know there's, there's wisdom principles need to factor in, but should not, at the very least, our heart's initial answer be, yes, I gotta look and make sure this is wise and good. But, but there's a world of difference between a heart that starts with reasons why not, as opposed to, yeah, I'd like to do that. How can we do that? How can we make this happen? Being generous. Being generous. Point D, be defrauded. Be defrauded from the one who takes away your goods same word you used in verse 29 one who takes away your cloak do not demand them back be defrauded don't demand your rights now again we have examples in scripture of Paul using his rights as a Roman citizen saying no no I don't want to be tried in Jerusalem I'm a Roman citizen I'm going to exercise my right I'm going to appeal to Caesar I'll let Caesar decide and, and he does that. And I think he, you can call the police and say, hey, you can say, hey, I think this is wrong. I think you owe me this. Um, at the very least, this is not demanding. And focus on that word, demanding back. You give it back to me. That, that servant who's forgiven millions and then finds the guy who owes him 50 bucks and shakes him. Now listen, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, rebuking the Corinthian church. To have lawsuits at all, he says, with one another is a defeat already for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And that's at the very least the question we got to, are you willing? Is that even a category that you'll accept? You know what? This time we might just be wronged, and that's okay. You know what? This time we might just be defrauded. This time they might just shut down our bakery. And you know what? That's okay. God is good. God is good. You know what, we, we can be wronged for Christ's sake, that's okay. Or is your mentality, nope, no one's getting the best of me. And if they try to, they better watch out. This is radically counterintuitive and counter how we're wired. Be defrauded. Tur- turn to me to Hebrews 10. Again, you say, okay, is this literal? Surely this is just a figure of speech. I'd encourage you to take this as literally as you can. And like I said, I, I, know, I know it's more complicated than this. We'll spend some time in the Sunday school class working through that. But every example I can find in Scripture seems to literally bear this out. Hebrews 10. Okay? And if you recall, the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who started well. And lately, he's got cause for concerns. And so the book alternates between encouraging them and instructing them about the superiority of Christ and warnings, hang in there, guys. You gotta make it to the end. Don't fall away. Don't turn back. And after giving them a very strong warning in verse 26 to 31, probably one of the strongest in the book, he tries to encourage them. Listen to this. Verse 32 of Hebrews 10. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, if you have need of endurance. These Christians were going out to jail, visiting the people afflicted, and when they came home, they found that people had plundered their property. How did they respond? They rejoiced. Just like Jesus says to do when people mistreat you and exclude you. Jump for joy. Why? Your reward is great in heaven. Why did they jump for joy? Why did they rejoice? Precisely the same reason. They knew. He said, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That, that's going to be the rub, guys. Do we really believe Jesus' promises? 
if we're going to inherit the kingdom of God, if we're going to inherit God's kingdom, if we're going to be rewarded by Heavenly Father, then you'll be more willing to be mistreated here, to, to miss out here, to be taken advantage of here. But if this, if this is all there is, then you've got to make it count. Let's look at love's standard. Let's look at love's standard as we, as we draw to a close. And here, again, Jesus confirms that what he has taught is meant to be radically different from anything they've heard anywhere else. He's going to give comparisons, three of them, of the way the world does stuff and saying, and if you just do that, so what? Jesus is understanding that what he has taught and what he is teaching is radically different from the way the world does things. He starts by, by giving them the, the standard, love as you would be loved. Love as you would be loved. As you wish others to do to you, do so to them. We call that the golden rule. As early as the 16th century, that had been coined the golden rule. And what Jesus does is he takes wisdom that even some of the Jews had heard. We find in Plato, in Philo, and in Herodotus versions of this saying. It's not unique. But in every version I found, it's always in the negative. What you hate to do, don't do to others. What you don't want done to you, don't do to others. And what Jesus does is he flips it upside down. He, he takes, this is linked with Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus puts it positively. And in so doing, he makes it impossible to fully fulfill. As you wish that others do to you, do so to them. Now, it's one thing to make a list of things I don't want done. But can any of us ever say, I've really given thought to all the things that I want done to me and I've done all those things to others. This is a standard and the bar is high. A standard of love. Love as you would be loved. Then in verses 32 to 34, we see that we are to love above and beyond the world's love to love above and beyond the world's love. Now listen to that, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. We have no problem finding in every religion, race, and tribe people who are like them, who are in their social group, who treat each other nicely, treating each other nicely. It's nice, it's not a bad thing. It's not remarkable, it's not uncommon, it's not supernatural. People in the flesh, devoid of the spirit, can and do that all the time. Even sinners love those who love them. That's, that's why we've got to stretch our boundaries beyond the people we like, the people who love us, the people who are kind to us. The, the proof is in the pudding is, is how do you treat those who don't? That's why Jesus goes to the enemies. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you again? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Now, likely what Jesus is saying here is not receiving back, because otherwise it would just be just give. It's, it's this notion of reciprocity. Who, do you, who are you willing to make loans to? I'm only willing to make loans to those people who I'm confident will pay me back and who I also expect that sometime in the future when I'm in need might help me out. If that's what you limit your lending to, you're never actually going to really help the poor, the people who probably can't pay you back and will probably not be in a position to help you out. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same. And the amount isn't in the Greek, it's just to get back the same. And then Jesus repeats his command and he gives us some motivation. This is hard stuff and we need motivation. How on earth can we do this? Why would we do this? How can we do this? Breaks all of his commands down to three things. Love your enemies, do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Point C, love and seek a great or heavenly reward. I want you to understand something. Jesus is no sadist. He's not just saying, suck it up. He's not saying, because of what I'm going to do for you, can't you do this little thing for me? 
He's not saying, because of how good it's gonna be in the future, can't you just do this little thing now? He's playing on their desire for reward. Jesus is, is using the motivation of my own desire for good and for reward. Notice how he's already said that. If you only do what sinners do, what benefit is that to you? What's the assumption? You and I want a benefit. You get that? You gotta understand the logic here. He is absolutely appealing to our desire to help ourselves, to benefit. Three times, what benefit is that to you? And then he lays it out clear as day. Your reward will be great. And we're back to where we were in the Beatitudes. The question is, do you want the reward you can see and touch now? Will you fight for that? Protect yourself from those who might threaten it? Attack those who would try to take it from you? Or do you want an eternal reward that will never perish? Understand, whoever obeys this is seeking a reward, and whoever doesn't obey this is seeking a reward. The question is, which reward do you seek? Jesus is not calling on us to be stoic sadists. He's assuming we want benefit, we want profit. He's just telling us, pursue the benefit that lasts for eternity. Pursue the reward that has dividends forever. Pursue the treasure where moth and rust do not destroy. Jesus himself did the same for the same reason. Look to Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2 says, the perfecter and founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross for joy. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The challenge is, will we pursue true self-interest, spiritually informed self-interest, a blessing and a joy and a reward that will not fade or do we want our reward now? Do we want our praise now? Do we want our fullness now? Do we want our safety now? That's how we do it. We believe in this. Only a faith in a God who rewards and watches will help us do this. And finally, love standard, we see that ultimately we are to love as your father loves. Love as your father loves. Now when Jesus says... You will be sons of the Most High. Again, he is not telling us how you become sons of the Most High. He's telling us how we demonstrate that we are sons of the Most High. The notion of sonship is biblically tied up with acting like. So that the title, a son of Belial, is a son of worthlessness. You're in the worthless family. You're demonstrating worthless traits or sons of God or those who, who are acting like God. And here, if we can do these things... We'll be imitating our Father. And again, as we challenge to think about this can't be literal, Romans 5.8, God shows his love to us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You think you got enemies? Every single one of us came into this world alienated from God, hostile in mind, born his enemies. And while we were still his enemies, he didn't just sit there and think nice thoughts. He sent his son and he died for us. How does God love his enemies? Turn, turn to 1 Peter. We'll close here. This is the, this is the testament of the New Testament. This is the, the witness of the New Testament authors. This is what we are called to. And if this is news to you, I'm, I'm sorry that the American dream and American Christianity has, has shaved off these sharp corners. But you read through church history and the saints of old understood this. Listen to Peter. 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 24. Very similar argument to what Jesus just said. What credit is it, or what benefit to you, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. 
Understand that this is suffering for doing good, potentially receiving a beating. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. He's not calling us to do anything he himself didn't first do. He committed no sin. Anyone want to raise their hand and... and No, this is, again, argument from the extreme, from the greater to the lesser. At some sense, when you and I are mistreated, at some level, we deserve it because we're sinners. He doesn't. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was looking forward to the coming justice, and in doing so, he bore Himself, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Follow that example. That's all Jesus is saying. Follow my example. It's tough, and it takes the spirit, and it takes faith in a kingdom to come. But make no mistake, Jesus walked his own talk. Jesus bore this out. The choice is, do we want to follow? Do we want to act like sons of the Father? Do we want to act like brothers of Christ? Or do we want to protect our own, guard ourselves? Live for this life. That's the challenge. We've gone long, so I'll close in prayer. But, but, but look this in the face. Don't look away. Lord God, these are hard words. These are difficult commands. These, these instructions go against all our wisdom, all of our inclinations, And we're afraid that if we obey them, that we'd be vulnerable, that we'd be taken advantage of, that we would be mistreated. Lord, give us the wisdom and the faith and the courage to be willing to be mistreated, to be willing to be wronged, to be willing to be defrauded, to love our enemies, and by our love to convince the world that we are truly your disciples. Lord God, increase our faith. Help us to follow the example that you set where we are so thankful that you loved your enemies in deed and not just in word and that you laid down your life for those enemies who wanted to kill you we are so thankful that you loved us in that way oh lord god give us the grace and the faith to begin to love others with that same love in jesus name amen you are dismissed